Hello, and welcome back to Close Reads here on the Close Reads Podcast Network. I'm David Kern. So I need to apologize because we had a bit of a scheduling snafu with getting everybody to be able to be together and just a lot of things going on for all the different people involved in Close Reads this week. So whereas we were normally going to, or originally rather, going to begin reading The Rector of Justin, we were going to do the first five chapters, we've got to punt that to next week. That means that we are going to have to kind of have an interstitial episode here. So I apologize for the inconvenience of that. Hopefully you'll look at it like it just gives you a little extra time to get ahead on your reading. But what I'm going to do this week is we we wanted to run an episode that we recorded for our Patreon supporters uh, a few months ago. It's an episode where Heidi and Tim and I discussed Ernest Hemingway's A Clean, Well-Lighted Place. Honestly, it's one of our favorite episodes we ever did. The three of us all agreed on that, that it was just one of the, the conversations that we enjoyed the most. A lot of people have a hard time with Hemingway. A lot of people have a hard time with this story. And so we dove into some of the reasons why that's the case. And it's a, it's a great story. So we were able to dive into the, the nuances and, and the, the, the craftsmanship of this story, as well as talk about Hemingway more generally. Uh, for those of you who are supporters of the show, you know if you want to re-listen, we will certainly um, accept that. Um, thank you so much for supporting the show. For those of you who are not, this is kind of a little bit of a, it's a bonus episode for you. It's a taste of what you get over on the, um, the subscribers episodes. Um, later on this month, we have another short story conversation coming. And in the months since we recorded this, we also recorded a conversation about an Agatha Christie short story um, and a Daniel Hawthorne short story. Um, so there's lots of good content over there. And I guess just consider this our apology for not being able to get you what was originally planned uh, this week. So we're so grateful for all, all our listeners. Uh, it's, it's wonderful to be able to talk to you and speak with you and be a part of this community with you. Thanks so much for listening. And we will, uh, we'll talk to you soon. Hope you enjoyed this bonus episode. Welcome to this uh, very special bonus Patreon supporter only episode of Close Reads. I'm not sure. Were all of those words hyphenated, do you think? Probably. Yeah, so just one long word. <laughs> yeah, right? exactly. One long word. Uh, I'm David Kern. I'm here with Heidi White and Tim McIntosh. We're here to talk about Ernest Hemingway, but first, Heidi and Tim, how's it going? I'm doing terrific. great. Yeah. Just terrific. Mm-hmm. We, um, we have not had the three of us do an episode in a little while. Um, I know, you... it feels like a reunion. Hi, guys. <laughs> it does. So it fun. does. It's been, what, like a whole month I or know, something? I know, it's been like a week and a half, probably. <laughs> <laughs> um, but Tim, you, um, you're working on some stuff, so tell people what you're up to these days. I have a top secret project. Uh, no, I tell us all about it. You <laughs> tell our Patreon supporters about your top okay, secret. Since it's the Patreon supporters, I will talk about it very briefly. I'm writing a book about the history of philosophy. It's a novel, though. And it's oh. kind of the idea of it um, is like the book Sophie's World, which I don't, is a great idea for a book. It's basically a young woman gets introduced to the history of philosophy through a, a series of letters from kind of a stranger that she ends up meeting. I think it's a great idea for a book that's not well executed because the philosophy and the story are just totally separate. And I've wanted to write a better version, and that's what I'm doing. And I'm, I just finished a rewrite of my play. That's what I'm doing. Wow. The end. So, the you know, the secret no, is no, out. Nothing terribly ambitious or with yeah, any it's way history of philosophy. Yeah. It's way too ambitious. When I started, I was like, one big book. And now it's very clearly three big books. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
I'm just going to replace Sophie's <laughs> choice. Sophie's world. We actually should replace Sophie's yeah. choice. Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sophie's world, that was a very different book than Sophie's choice. <laughs> it's very true. It's very true. Um, Heidi, what are you up to besides about to go camping with your sous vide machine? Your sous-vide? I am going to do that. I'm going to yeah. go camping with my sous vide machine and my champagne. <laughs> Is it a machine? That's probably the wrong word. No, you plug it into the wall and it I, all makes right. perfect steak. So okay, we're, we'll go like with a, the machine then. Yeah. It's like so crazy. what are you plugging it into, Heidi? Well, you guys we have a camper a with... Well, we have full hookups at our campsite. So you just plug in our camper and then we can chill our champagne and make perfect steaks. <laughs> in the shadow of the Rocky Mountains. It's the perfect life. <laughs> but Heidi, I thought you said you were going camping. <laughs> well, we're going to Ooh, a. We're taking our tiny adventure house on a little trip. So. I, mean, I do. I do like the tiny adventure house is a better return than camper. No offense. Yeah, camper. tiny adventure house on wheels. Yeah. Well, our best friends are going like backpacking this weekend, like six miles into the wilderness, kind of with like freeze dried food, and I'm like, bye, have fun storming the castle. I'm going to be drinking yeah. champagne. Yeah. Have fun storming it's, the castle. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny that they might, they probably are using the word camping and you guys are using the word camping for very, very different, very different events. It's, you it's know, a Tim, semantics issue. We should, you, pretty, you know, or you should put that in your history of philosophy book. Oh, yeah. Volume There's three. There's an idea for yeah. mm. I want to be on the cover. <laughs> <laughs> Running a blurb. Tim stole everything. <laughs> the cover, the cover is just a picture of Heidi sleeping in luxury in an adventure in an adventure house. That's right. Yeah, in my tiny adventure house. <laughs> well, you know, it's a clean, well lighted place. I was literally just going to say that. <laughs> you stole my transition. I saw your joke. <laughs> oh, oh man! Now I'm just out of sorts. Yeah. What's a host or we could get, you can't even we do could a get best friends necklaces. That's another yeah. option. Tim, you yeah. mean for Tim and me? Yeah. yeah. No, for me and you because we have <laughs> oh, the same joke oh, at the same oh. time. Are, can men and women be friends? Oh, that's wow. another question. That goes yeah. in Tim's book too. <laughs> yeah. Is that a Patreon podcast or is that yeah, a full we, close reads? Yeah. We're, I mean, given that it, for our Patreon listeners, we're kind of letting things get off the rail a little bit because we know you already I like know, us. I'm sorry. But. No, I mean, this is, you know, it's like talking to my three-year-old. Um, <laughs> we are here to discuss Ernest Hemingway's uh, A Clean, Well-Lighted Place, one of his short stories. And, and, and it, you know, short is a good term for it. It's not a long story. Um, and he has written, well, did write um, many much longer stories. And I don't know that this is his best or even his best known short story but we get a lot of comments um or or in lingering on the the facebook page at least i come across comments of people who are saying that they are um they don't get what the big deal is about hemingway or they read him when they were in college or in high school and they really didn't like him or you know comments like that the 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 usual sort of thing but the three of us are hemingway fans and so yes um we are going to attempt here and there to, I don't know if the convert is the right word, but help people understand why we like Ernest Hemingway. I think that's probably the best yeah. approach. We're not going to be, you know, we're not going to like proselytize in the for the church of Ernest Hemingway, but we might be able to kind of explain why it is that 
he's meaningful to us, why we like his work, and why we hope that you will give him a second chance if you don't like him. If you already do like him, then hopefully this is one of those speaking to the choir situations where you will um, just have a good time hanging out with us. So, um, Tim, uh, yes. since you are writing a very long book, I don't know what that, I don't know why I said since, but could you give us the very brief summary of the story? <laughs> yes, I will. The story is largely a conversation between two waiters who are observing an old man that is drinking at their cafe at the end of the night. One of them. That was a great summary. The, the end. <laughs> one of them really wants him to go home, wants the old man to go home. And the other one is more sympathetic. And they have a conversation that says that the old man had attempted to commit suicide. His niece cut him down. And then the waiters, one of the waiters, the less forgiving one, um, the less sympathetic one, basically, you know, doesn't serve the old man any drinks anymore. The two waiters close up shop and then they walk home. One goes his way to his wife where he's not lonely and the other continues to walk, goes to a cafe, has a drink by himself and is thinking about what the old man, think about the old man and himself. Well done. It is not a plot heavy short story. <laughs> no, in fact, um, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because that's one of those things that people complain about at times with Hemingway um, that it's, that it's just people complaining and, drinking <laughs> um which might just describe the 20th century but um <laughs> right that's but, good but but the uh so the so yes this is not a plot heavy story so then that that automatically sort of offers some limitations or some constraints to the way that you can approach it as a reader or as a teacher or or when you're discussing it yeah you know, a, a story that is heavy on plot has some sort of. Uh, this is maybe maybe a neg. It's going to sound like a negative term, but some low hanging fruit as far as entryway into a discussion of the story. And right. I think sometimes one of the things that makes Hemingway difficult is it's not always clear where to start talking about it, or even where to start thinking about it, um, because it doesn't always make obvious the questions that you're supposed to ask. Um, <clears throat> so, and this is a case in point for me, David. Like yes. Even the question of, this might be fun for Heidi to talk about, who is the protagonist in the story? Mm -hmm. Is there an antagonist in the story? Yeah. And yeah, what's yeah. at stake in this story? Like, that's, that's a really difficult, I mean, those are the basics. If you went to a story writing 101, answering those three questions are absolutely fundamental. And this story, an all-time classic, doesn't really answer those very clearly. Hmm. Right. Yeah. Do well let me let's let's start here. I want to take a little bit of a step back before we go into that too much. I want to hear from each of you about your relationship with Hemingway, I guess is the best way to put it. How do you, when did you first read Hemingway? What is your what mm -hmm. is your favorite? What did you read? What was it? Uh The Farewell to Arms was my first experience with Hemingway. Uh, we read it in Honors English my junior year. It was the first Hemingway right. I ever read, and I was in love from that moment on. Mm. Well, okay, so why? Because you just you wanted to read stories about people being depressed and talking? 
Well, at that point in my life, I probably did. Um, <laughs> well, you're in high school, I, I had so. the angsty adolescent college years a little early. Um, <laughs> I, but I, I think that what I loved about Hemingway from the beginning is something I wouldn't have been able to put into words then, but he says very well about his own work. He says that his work is like an iceberg. So hmm. he says there's a little bit above the waterline that you can see, but seven-eighths of it is under the surface. And he writes it that way intentionally, so you have to dig into it. And I felt that even as a high school student, although I couldn't have said it that way. I just felt like there was this emotional Mm. weight and depth to it that I I couldn't get to the bottom of, but I wanted to. Mm. Something you couldn't put your finger on, but you felt it there. Yeah, it felt like an emotional code, and I wanted to crack it. Tim, is that was that how your first experience was? Do you, would you describe it similarly? I love the description that it's, it was an emotional code and I had to crack it because that was exactly my experience. My first reading was, I, I was angsty later than Heidi. It was probably my <laughs> junior year in college, playwright. maybe my sophomore year in college. And I read The Sun Also Rises. Mm. And I had never read a book that was considered a classic that wasn't forced upon me that built up resentment because I hated it. You know, I just didn't enjoy reading the Odyssey. I didn't enjoy reading the other classics I was forced to read, but I picked this one up voluntarily. I think a friend recommended it and I was utterly transfixed. I read it so quickly. Mm. I was so moved by it. I had like Heidi, I had no idea why I was so moved by it. Um, And yeah, and I I started reading everything that Hemingway published, and I I don't know I might have read everything he's published except for some of the some of the weaker novels near the end of his career. Mm-hmm. I love this idea that there's something inexplicable about why we love him, especially at first. I mean, I think you as you study him closer, you begin to realize some of what he's doing craft wise. Right. Uh-huh. You know, he had this such a unique. And, and and highly influential style, you know, it's so spare, but it's not spare just kind of by accident. It's there's very purposeful syntactical things that he's doing, and and so on the surface you can't, it's hard to put your finger on it, but but you also instinctively, I think, readers recognize that this is a guy who's what he's doing is not an accident. You know, he's making choices. Right. There's not, even right. he's not heavy on plot. He's not, you know, moving the story in a specific direction in that way. Or he's make he's not, um, you know, making it a page turner in the traditional, you know, like like a crime novel or a mystery novel or something would be. It's still purposeful. You know, there's choices. Every every word, in, in as much as it's so spare, it's not spare because because he, you know didn't want to write complex sentences. It's spare because he's making choices of what to leave out and what to put where and so forth. Um, and, uh-huh, and so uh-huh. there's a complexity in the simplicity in his stories. And that I think is what kind of brings us back to it, but also leads to that sort of instinctive sense that there's so much more going on. You know, it, it, there's that purposeful complexity that's all in the subtext, um, I think is, is so... Um, it's like dripping. <laughs> yeah. Can I give you an example, David? One that always sticks out to me whenever I read it is from um, The Sun Also Rises. Yeah. The yeah, main yeah. character, Jake, goes to visit a Catholic church. And when he walks out, 
he feels his fingers drying. I think it says drying in the sun. Hmm. There's no explanation of his fingers touching anything wet. And so the reader, but I think it concludes, the sentence concludes a paragraph. And so the reader is left saying, wait, 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 why are his fingers drying in the sun? Why, why are they wet? Is it because he touched holy water? Is it because, and, you know, and he um, crossed himself? Is it because he was crying? Because the scene in the Catholic Church was very emotional. He wanted to feel something. Did he end up feeling something? And so that example is, it, it creates a bit of ambiguity in that the reader doesn't know. But oftentimes, to Heidi's lovely phrase, it can be kind of decoded. If you, if you understand what's going on with the story, you might read a sentence that doesn't quite make sense on the first read. It's a little bit gray. It's a little bit ambiguous. But when you understand what he's doing with the story, usually that ambiguous sentence will make sense. It's not just, it's not just um, poetic ambiguity to deceive the reader. It's very purposeful. And it's very precise. Right. Well, and an example of that from this story, that's so well said, Tim, is at the very first dialogue in this story, one waiter says, says, last week he tried to commit suicide, one waiter said, speaking of the old man in the cafe. Why? He was in despair. What about? Nothing. Yeah. Yeah. Talk about a code, right? Because nothing becomes totally. the word of the whole story. Mm-hmm. Nada, nada, yeah. nada. Which in Hemingway, if you look for repeated words, there's a little bit of a clue there. There's just a craftsman yeah. issue. A lot of times there'll be repeated words and then you go back and look for them and they're there embedded within the story, but you miss them the first time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, we're going to have to talk at, you know, We'll talk at length about the concept of of nothing. Um, <laughs> how do you know it was nothing? I, I have a question, David. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, who who's the protagonist in the story? Great question. We basically only encounter three characters, and really, we only encounter two. But it's the, the object of the action that the two waiters are observing is the man, the old man who is drinking heavily and who apparently, according to one waiter, is in despair over nothing. Um, the other two waiters don't do much. They just comment on mm-hmm. what they see in the old man's behavior. So I think it's like, I think we've got three choices here. So I was thinking about this and I was thinking about what Hemingway's doing with the writing, you know, the the syntax. And so I got to thinking about these first two sentences because these are classic Hemingway sentences where, you know, it takes you a minute to get into the flow of them. So it begins, it was very late and everyone had left the cafe except an old man who sat in the shadow, the leaves of the tree made against the electric light in the daytime. The street was dusty, but at night the dew settled the dust and the old man liked to sit late because he was deaf and now at night it was quiet and he felt the difference. Um, and so I, I was thinking about how most people would write that first sentence, for example, um, who, who sat in the shadow 
of the tree or something like that. The, the shadow of the leaves or something like that. They'd write it in a such that the there's passivity in the trees, but he turns both the dew and the leaves, or the shadow of the the shadow, of the leaves of the tree. He makes those active. Mm-hmm. They're the agents. They're not, you know, it's, it's not the, the agents of the sentence become the shadow, the leaves of the tree. So the, the leaves of the tree are making a shadow. They, they are doing the action and the dew is settling the dust. Um, and they're, they're almost the only things in this story that have much real agency, which I found was really mm-hmm. interesting. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, except in as much as the one waiter actually pours the drinks, um, he makes the choice, for example, to let it overflow. But that's mm-hmm. one of the things that makes it difficult to figure out because there is no agency. You know, no one is doing much of any of the action. No one is in control of anything. But also, it's not totally clear who's being acted upon. So mm-hmm. um, we have the old man, but he can't even hear anything. <laughs> he he goes by what yeah. he feels. Um, and and so the the turning turning the the um the the shadows and the dew into the 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 actors basically in the first two sentences is really it's both moving and really intriguing from a craft perspective to me because it suggests right away that that the way we traditionally think about agency and action is not going to apply in this story. I think that's brilliant, David, and I think that that is something that for for readers who are less familiar with Hemingway, if you don't pick up on that the way you do with just being able to identify that right away. Cause that first sentence you have to read a couple of times. Mm-hmm. I had to read it a couple of times, especially about the shadow on the trees, which by the way, I mentioned three times in the story, the shadow <laughs> of the leaf mm-hmm. and in a 1500 word story, but it's never really clear what they mean. And I'm using air quotes, right? There's just this <laughs> mystery and, um, to Hemingway's writing, no matter how, you know, he's always said it's like very direct and straightforward. I don't believe that at all. He's not direct and straightforward. He is very, very, very subtle. And, but that exact thing that you said about the active and the passive thing is something most readers just feel as they're reading him. They can't necessarily yeah. identify it in the craftsman type of way, the way you can. And well, I think, but, but that's part of the genius of Hemingway. Just let it happen, right? Just let it act upon you yeah, so that you have yeah. this kind of sense of disequilibrium yeah. as you're reading it and this emotional weight to it, but you're not quite sure how to put your finger on it. That's mm-hmm. part of what makes Hemingway great. Hemingway's writing in some ways reminds me of these Picasso paintings that he did, little watercolors that he did at the end of his life of bullfights. They are the simplest paintings and they are so beautiful. Think the Picasso of cubism and the elongated features of the blue period. Just think of almost a child um, who is making simple line drawings of a bullfight and it's all full of white space, very few markings on the page. And with those very few markings, he manages to elicit this entire arena and the huge pageantry of a bullfight. And I think Hemingway's ability as a writer is the same way. With so few words, he summons forth an incredible amount of internal and external action. and. Um, this this story is actually full 
of tension mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it just probably won't occur to you until you go through the second week, which I really encourage readers to do. It's not going to, it's going to take you seven minutes to read it, read it, put it away, do your dishes, you know, do something that, that doesn't really occupy your mind and then read it again. And you'll discover, I think that the conversation between the two waiters is a tug of war. They are going mm-hmm. back and forth. and one of them who doesn't understand the old man who just wants to go home to his wife, who has no sympathy with the old man, who doesn't really care if he commits suicide or doesn't commit suicide, um, is in a tug of war with this older waiter who is very sympathetic with the old man, who is explaining the old man to this man who seems to have no real regard for him. And they're going back and forth. And I think like, decoding the emotions of the story, Heidi, I think that's an example of um, the emotions in the story becoming manifest, even though it's very difficult to discern upon first read. Right. Mm. right. You guys are, I, I was, as you were talking, I was looking for a tweet that um, Jeffrey Overstreet, who's been on some of our various podcasts before, he's a film critic and a novelist, and Rotten Tomatoes had posted a the, the like film review aggregator had posted a um, kind of a split screen video of how much animation has evolved in the last 25 years using the original Lion King from 1994. And then oh, the, yeah. the real, you know, the one that's coming out next week or whatever, that's, it's almost shot for shot, but it's, it's like live action. Well, not, not really live action, but it's basically, you know, that's, that's the, essentially that's the idea. And he retweeted, he, 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 tweeted, he retweeted that and then he posted this. He said, Hey, Georgia O'Keeffe, are Disney's realistic, hyper-detailed remakes a meaningful advance in Disney's artistry? And then he made it look like she was responding with this quote from Georgia O'Keeffe. Nothing is less real than realism. Details are confusing. It is only by selection, by elimination, by emphasis that we get at the real meaning of things. And as you were talking <laughs> about Hemingway, it, that quote came to mind. That maybe there's... And you were talking about Picasso there. Maybe there's something huh. going on there. I, don't, I think we'd have to define what she means exactly by realism. But um, maybe he's doing something That's like that. That's a great picture. Great. That's wow. a great com- comparison of yeah, what he's up to and probably like what Georgia O'Keeffe is up to also. Right. Right. The, the whole last generation. Right? That's, they're, yeah. they're trying yeah. to find the subtext of human emotion, right? And why, for example, these waiters, they are the second waiter, the waiter who is sympathetic to the old man. And I love how in the middle of that conversation, they kind of, just when you're starting to hate the young waiter and think he's such a jerk, Uh he throws that thing in about, he's not a bad man. He's just in a hurry. I loved that. Yeah. But the whole, what's really happening in that conversation is that they're not talking about the old man. They're talking about themselves. Absolutely. Right? Like that, that, the sympathetic waiter is saying, I'm lonely like this old man. And incidentally, right. I think that's why the old man has to be deaf. Right. I yes. Think, I think that it, because they're the, because it, it changes the, the contours and the constraints of the conversation itself. It makes it about right. the two of them. And he, he is literally excluded from the conversation. You know, they, mm-hmm. he can't even, he doesn't even know they're having a conversation and that focuses it, focuses it so much more on them and thus, you know, on, on the, their inner life, so to speak. Right. 
Which to George O'Keefe's point, maybe, or the lost generation and the point that they're trying to say is that that's what everybody does, right? That that's, that's the actual, that's the seven eighths of the iceberg that's under the surface is let's pay attention because people are really talking about themselves. Hmm. That's, and that's really your only opportunity for human connection, according to Hemingway, is we're all feeling the nothingness. And that, I think, is why the story is about them, these two waiters watching the man instead of about the more, what some might consider the more interesting or the more realistic plot, which would be, let's talk about, let, let's write a story about the niece cutting the man, the old man down from the mm-hmm. ceiling at the dramatic part. Yeah, that's right? just but kind Hemingway of... Hemingway saying, that's not the whole story. That's mm-hmm. not the real story. The real thing going on is two waiters with a lot of subtext talking about human loneliness. Mm-hmm. And by the yeah. way, how does the older waiter know that he tried to commit suicide? How does right. he know that it was his niece that cut him down? Well, someone had to tell him, why did they tell him and not the other waiter? Right. Maybe because maybe he asked, maybe because the niece told him, the niece sensed that he had a softer ear because maybe he, he he shares enough in common with the old man or at least like a sympathy for his plight that he that she thinks he would understand again these things are not spelled right. out but the fact that he knows and the other waiter does not know tells us something about a lot about who they are right hmm hmm do you guys think it was interesting that he has the waiter sitting at a table by the uh, by the wall like near the door. They're not actually where waiters would normally be. Right. Right. They're ready to go home, right? But there's... Yeah, they're ready. Yeah. The old man is sitting in the shadow of the leaves of the tree that moves slightly in the wind. Mm. Go ahead. I've thought so much about that, the shadow of the trees, because again, it's mentioned three times. And it's such a short story mm-hmm. and wondering about that, the interplay of light and darkness, light is in the name and it's part of that second waiter's contemplation, how you want it. You don't, you want to be in a place that's lit. You need to be with light when it's at night, but the shadow of the trees is that interplay of light and darkness. Do you think that's kind of getting to it? Cause that intrigued me so much, but I couldn't, put my finger on it. It's elusive, that imagery of the shadow of the trees. Um, so, should, should we talk about the Republic? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you, you know what I was going to mention is like, it, it strikes me is um, Heraclitus, the first philosopher of chaos. Uh-huh. You know? Hey, Tim, you, I was going to say, is he like out of chapter? <laughs> I mean, yeah, he's no one steps in the same river him. twice. Is that Herodotus <laughs> right. or Heraclitus? Yeah, exactly right. Okay. That's exactly yeah. right. Yeah. And you can kind of juxtapose him with maybe Pythagoras where, mm-hmm. or, or, or even Aristotle. There's a deep harmony mm-hmm. in all of nature. And the froth of the horse's mouth may, may appear grotesque, but that's because you're divorcing it from the bigger picture of this amazing animal that is the horse that is like strong, dignified, powerful. And I wonder 
Hemingway strikes me that he sees the world as a Heraclitan, Heraclitan, I guess that's a word now. <laughs> it's a world in which Heraclitus got it right. And the only thing that you can do is the thing that we should long for is to be human beings who stand up against this and preserve our dignity. Right. And who in some way see each other, can identify with each other and recognize that we're in the same fight. And we can't do anything about the constantly changing, like light being thrown over us that, that sometimes it's like dappled and beautiful. Sometimes that's horrifying and grotesque at other times. We can't do anything about that. The only thing that we can do is act with dignity. Right. Mm. Yep. The very old man walking unsteadily, but with dignity, but with dignity. Right. What do, you, what do you make? So going back to the shadow idea though, what, what do you make of the idea that it's the, so it, all three times that we get the shadow, it specifically says that it's the old man who sits in the shadow. That's right. And so, and so Heidi, you're talking about this interplay of light and dark. That's kind of like the shadow is sort of the convergence of them. Darkness, light, darkness being the absence of light. So the absence of light and the light itself, you know, intersecting somewhere, somewhere right near him. So, right. And then they're talking about the niece fearing for his soul. And so the, when I think of shadow, I think of it's partly in the dark, partly in the light. I mean, is that meant to be something more than just sort of metaphorical subtext that helps us understand the character and draws up the themes? Or do you think there's more going on there in terms of why the old man is sitting in the shadow? Um, Especially given this is a place... See, the thing that that strikes me about it is the whole point is it's this bar is a place that is well-lighted, right? It's clean and it's well-lighted. But he's not in the part of the bar that is well-lighted. Right. If he's in the right, shadow. He, right. I don't know to your question, is it meant to be this or that? I think that that is why An unfair that question. image. Well, I don't know that it's unfair. I think it's literary. That's, that's what literary thinkers do, right? You go into a story and you try to figure out what is this symbol symbolic of? It's clear it's a symbol. It's repeated several times. So what, what, what does it mean? Mm-hmm. And and what I have found with Hemingway is that it adds to this emotional weight of the story, but I can't, I don't know. Right? It's not explored in the sense that it's like played out. And it, that's sometimes with Hemingway, it's an illusion. Like for example, with Jake Barnes in The Sun Also Rises when he goes fishing, right? If you know Western culture, you know that's a reference to the Fisher King. And so that that kind of puts this whole symbol in, in, in its proper context. But with the shadow on the trees here, I'm just not, I don't know. And I think that's why I love it. So, Tim, is the fact that he's in the shadow, is that, is that, is that, is it a glass half full or a glass half empty thing? Like, does it mean that he's, he's mostly in the dark or mostly in the light? I mean, is he, is he, is the purpose of the place, this idea of this clean, well-lighted place that he's not actually in totally? I mean, does that mean that he does, I'll just, I'll just go back to what I said. Is it a glass half full or glass half empty? Is it more good or more bad? Is <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking about the way that it's, it's not exactly clear um, what it means that these people are in this place. Right. Yeah. I, I don't so know. So help me. 
the, the way <laughs> I don't know the, the way that I want to read it is he is slightly obscure and our two waiters are looking at him and they're defining what he is according to what they think about themselves, just like Heidi was saying. So he's, he's, it's not perfectly clear. Why would a, why would a person commit suicide? Right. One of them, the older one who identifies with him knows he's it's like, I totally understand why he would want to commit suicide. Mm-hmm. The younger one full of life, he's married, he's, you know, full of energy. He has everything says the old waiter doesn't understand. And so they're both looking at the same figure and they're both kind of defining what the old man means, what his despair means and why he would so, have despair according to them, their own selves. So then is he kind of the one that's sort of his perspective? He's on the verge. He's sort of in between them, I guess he can either make the, the he can either lean towards that. Yeah. I get why he committed suicide or he can lean towards the, um, the young guy who has the wife at home yeah. and he, and so the fact that he's in the shadow, he he's kind of on that line and he's yeah. still, he's, right. he maintains being on that line because she cut him down. Um, and and uh-huh. so, so I guess maybe it depends on, does the place ultimately save him, so to speak as right. the, as the uh, one bartender seems to suggest that it could, you know, people go there in a sense to be saved. Yes. Right. Well, and you're, I like how you said the tree in the shadow is a, convergence point. I think that that's important because we also have three men of different ages, right? That mm-hmm. the, the story doesn't tell us that the second waiter, the more sympathetic waiter is middle-aged, but in some ways it's implied, right? He talks yeah. about being no longer young. So you have this young, happy, confident. I'm all confidence, right? When the older waiter jokes with him and implies that his wife is cheating on him and maybe you're afraid to go home, like that's, I'm all confidence, right? So he has, his wife is waiting in bed at home for him. And so he's happy, but you also feel this sense of hovering doom over this young waiter, like just live long enough to become the middle-aged man. And then you will become the old man. And then, 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 then your hope, as David said, is to drink and to stagger home with some dignity, right? So that, or maybe it was you that said that, Tim, but that, the point is you're exactly right. Hemingway is saying it's the same river, but no man steps in it twice, right? That, but really nothingness is our destiny. And the clean, well-lighted place is, I don't know, the stopping point on our way. The, the only thing that, the only hope for some kind of, salvation or connection. Hey, I just want to take a quick break to uh, give you a word from our sponsors, our friends over at Gutenberg College. We all know we live in a messy and complex world, yet so often we oversimplify critical issues about humanity, culture, and ultimate reality. Bombarded with sound bites, biased research, and fragmented narratives, we may wonder how we even begin thinking about today's issues and how to live a worthy life in the face of them. But what if there were a way to get clarity about the causes of our problems and the many solutions proposed to them? What if there were a way to understand people, culture, and yourself at a deeper level so that you could live with purpose, integrity, and wisdom? At Gutenberg College, there is. Gutenberg College in Eugene, Oregon offers a unique BA in liberal arts grounded in the great books and a biblical worldview. Authors like Plato, Einstein, and St. Augustine pen the works that have shaped the world as we know it. 
And there's are just a few of the deep voices Gutenberg students hear as they join a conversation that has continued for thousands of years. When you understand the past, you can thrive in the present and navigate the future. You can know how to care for others, serve with confidence in your vocation, and stay true to what matters most. To find out more about how a Gutenberg education can help you cultivate wisdom that will serve you for a lifetime, visit www.gutenberg.edu slash preview. Again, that's www.gutenberg.edu slash preview. And now back to the episode. So is this, uh, let's go to the end then, given what you're saying mm-hmm. here. Yeah, is, this a, uh, is this a fundamentally sort of nihilistic, despairing ending in your opinion? Well, Tim, I'll ask you that since Heidi was just speaking. <laughs> it, it completely depends on whether, for me, it completely depends on whether or not you're sympathetic with Hemingway's answer. Um, it, it, I am, I am not there with him, but I am sympathetic with him in the way that Tolkien was sympathetic with um, the Scandinavians who wrote Beowulf. There's this strong sense that one must like fight against the darkness, even though you know that the darkness is going to overwhelm you at the end. I think Hemingway would say something very similar, even if you know the darkness is going to overwhelm you at the end, to say, no, I have dignity. Human beings have dignity. And I'm going to act in such a manner, despite this overwhelming tide. And I mean, keep in mind, I, I, I think Hemingway and Fitzgerald, Ford Maddox Ford, there's this deep, deep sense of loss. They're, they mm-hmm. were called the lost mm-hmm. generation for mm-hmm. all the right reasons. They, they lived through World War I. The idealism of the Western world was, to call it shattered would be an understatement. World War I was so bloody. And so now everyone is rethinking what, what kind of culture have we inherited? What kind of world have we inherited? And for Hemingway, he wants to preserve some sense of, some sense of right action in a world that he has witnessed in his formative years is utterly chaotic and, and brutal. And I, I just, I mean, I, as a Christian, I don't go all the way there, but reading him with a sympathetic, I, I'm so sympathetic with where he ends up. Mm. You know, I, you mentioned that phrase as a Christian, and there's, there are definitely some references in the story to the Lord's Prayer, for example, to the, Hail Mary, things like that. Um, I think we should talk about that. So the older waiter is uh, by himself. He's continuing the conversation with himself, as it says, as he's off to the other, to the bar. And there's that, our nada who art nada, nada be thy name. Mm. That bit even says, hail nothing full of nothing. Nothing is with thee. It, what's going on here? And how should, how in particular, I guess, do you read this as a Christian, Heidi? Well, that's a very big question. and. Uh, I mean, this is a philosophical statement. Tim, you should definitely put this in your book. (laughs) He is, this is, as Tim pointed out, this is the first generation to have lost its moorings in the 20th century. So what they write, uh, these, these lost generation writers are extremely important in understanding the decline 
of Western civilization because they're living it. They're not writing about it. This is their life. This is the contemplation of their minds that World War I undid the moorings of civilization. We no longer believe. What do we do about that? Mm-hmm. So Hemingway is exploring that. I think it's very important for Christians to enter into that. We don't have to believe it because we do believe in something. The nadas in this story are actual words that mean something to us. Um, but Hemingway is not trying to um, just be irreverent and undercut. He's not undercutting Christianity. He's naming the problem of his generation. And those are two different things. And I think for Christians entering into Hemingway for the first time, we have to realize he's not trying to get rid of God. He's saying, God isn't here. What do I do? And how do, how do we feel about that? And so I, I think that's important as Christians to enter into that with some compassion and some empathy um, as to what that would feel like to be kind of the first people in the history of the world who felt that as an entire civilization. Mm. Yeah. Mm. I think, Heidi, what you said, I just want to underscore it. It's tempting to read. it's tempting to read the waiter saying the Lord's prayer and filling in the blanks with nada, nothing as irreverence. But I think that would be a, a that would be a deep misreading of Hemingway. What, what I think, and this is based not just on this story, but kind of like his large cor- larger corpus is the forms of Christianity remained after world war one. Yes. Some cathedrals were bombed, some churches across Western Europe were decimated, but nevertheless, the forms remained intact. It was what it was the content within those forms that became subject of deep, deep doubt. It's like a terrible analogy. If you took all of the ice cream out of the tub, but the tub is still there, that's kind of what Hemingway and his friends are left with. The content of the Lord's Prayer has become nada something that. Nada. We, we can't say it anymore and believe this, given what we've given what we've just seen. But nevertheless, the form of the prayer remains. Mm-hmm. The well, form of the church, right. right? Well, and I think particularly Hemingway. I mean, I I love the reading the Lost Generation. I like I have this melancholy streak in me that that relates to it, like you do, Tim. But that. I, I think Hemingway that more an than an accusation anyone. that felt like maybe an accusation <laughs> against you or Tim? No, against him. <laughs> no, oh, no, I took it as no. a. <laughs> well, I didn't, like, I didn't hear David's it that way. So happy, he's like the young waiter, but <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's just in a hurry. He's not a yeah. bad guy, though. I mean, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's not what I think about David world um but <laughs> what i what what i what i feel in hemingway more than any other writer in the last generation is grief mm. just this weight like this this lostness and this grieving not not because he believed and lost it but because he's he's like channeling this transition yeah yeah. And just seems his writing like is so bewildered. Yeah. Yeah, there's that bit that is really poignant to me where he's um 
he's the, the the older waiter is thinking he's saying you don't you know you don't want music that's can't have, you certainly you do not want music right. you can't have music in the place and he says nor can you stand before a bar with dignity although that is all that is provided for these hours and and yes. in, implicit in that is this longing to stand somewhere and be dignified to have mm. dignity but the only option to do that right now at these hours when it's hardest to be dignified is to stand at the bar but it's impossible he says to stand at a bar and be dignified so the the deepest this deep longing that he has is fundamentally unfulfillable given the restraints given what's offered to him and so then he goes oh, from there and that's everything about Hemingway what you just said that was brilliant mm-hmm. Well, then he switches. So then the very next question is, what did he fear? Which is, it almost comes out of nowhere, right? Because again, implicit is he's, he's, he recognizes in himself that he interprets that longing he has as fear. Right. That's what I think is going on there. And then he says, but no, it's not a fear or, or, or a dread. It's a nothing that he knew too well. So it's like, mm. it's that idea of an absence that you can know is, is really really rich and i think you're i mean you're you're the professional here as far as this goes but there's a lot going into that about anxiety and depression right but how you can, mm-hmm. so many times you can't you maybe you can't even name what you're what you're anxious about right mm-hmm. it's it's almost impossible to put a put a finger on what's driving your anxiety or your depression i mean sometimes you can but sometimes you realize i don't even know why i'm sitting here feeling paralyzed it's right. you you can't you can't name it it's impossible you can't figure it out but it's still there um and then he says but a man and is one of the deep too. ironies it's good yeah 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 one of the deep ironies of the story is that the young man doesn't seem to feel that the younger waiter doesn't seem to feel that and yeah he's a little bit calloused he's kind of a jerk but he's kind of happier because he doesn't sense it He's blithely unaware. And (laughs) one of the questions of the story is, who would you rather be? And I think Hemingway ultimately is going to say, I think even though you're going to be sad or even though you might suffer, quote, insomnia, um, you would rather be the old man. You'd rather be the old waiter and acknowledge it and and make a choice. Make a choice to like live a life of dignity than remain blissfully ignorant, callous, not feel this thing that is the human plight. Well, he says, you know, right after this, he, he says it was only that. And then with Hemingway, you always got to figure out what his pronouns are. What is that? Right. Yeah. But he says, yeah. and light was all it, it needed and a certain cleanness and order. So, you know, light and cleanness and order, it's all it needed. You know, he's very understated. But then he says, some lived in it and never felt it. And I think, that's the young man. That's what you're saying about the young man. The young man is the one who lives in it and never feels it. He, he lives amidst right. the nothingness, but he doesn't feel it yet. I think that's what he's getting at there. He's referencing the younger man. And that speaks to what you were just saying, I think. I think that's, I think that's what he's getting at there. Mm-hmm. I agree. I agree. What, so let's talk about this line. It was only that and light was all it needed and a certain cleanness and order. Um, I think it's a pretty crucial line. (laughs) The closest you get to a thesis statement, right? (laughs) Or a summary. It was not a fear or a dread. It was nothing that he knew too well. It was all nothing, and a man was a nothing too. It was only that, and light was all it needed. So you've got all these pronouns. Are they all the same thing? Are all those it's and that's the same thing? Or is it shifting there? 
I thought about this. I read this last night before bed and read that line. That must like have been 50 that, times. You must have felt super, super ready to go to sleep. <laughs> it was only that. I was like, what is that? Is that the nothing? Which, of course, then I'm thinking about the never ending story <laughs> with the, the creeping nothing coming in. Um, is it? It was only that. It's got to be the nothing, right? Is that what it means? Is well, okay. that what it's referencing? So I was thinking about it and I was going back to that sentence I read a minute ago. Nor can you stand before a bar with dignity, although that is all that is provided. So there the that is the bar, right? Right. So then it says, what did he fear? It was not a fear or dread. So then it seems like the at has shifted there. So maybe it's not the bar anymore. It was a nothing that he knew all too well. Is Is the it, the absence, the absence of dignity, the absence of being able to to stand in a dignified way because all you have is the bar to stand at, but the bar doesn't allow for dignity. Is the, is the, is the, is the, is the lack of an, is the lack of the antecedent meant to be an objective correlative to this concept of nothingness? Okay. Tim, we need your help here. Get off mute and answer the question. No, I'm not. I can't. I'm not. (laughs) I feel like the struggle, the struggle that you guys are enduring is the point. I'm, I don't point. feel like I should exactly. that way. Yeah. No, you're exactly right. It is the point. But then so, you can't stand back from the point, though. You have to engage exactly. the point. So get in this conversation. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, we could. We could I mean, we could just walk away. I'm a young waiter. My wife is waiting for me. Tim is all confidence. Um, I've always so thought that about Tim. Yep. <laughs> He should be, right? Turning off the electric light, he continued the conversation with himself. It is the light, of course. So could it could also then be the solution to the nothingness or the mm-hmm. thing that they're seeking in the clean, well-lighted place, the comfort, the consolation of the clean, well-lighted place. I guess he does say it was the light, of course. We could just take him literally. Right. <laughs> But it is necessary that the place be clean and pleasant. But he, So there's the light, but it's not enough that it's just the light, he says. It's necessary that the place be clean and pleasant. Right. Well, and if you go back, back, even further, right before that, that you do not understand line, which I think is very important too. You do not understand. This is a clean and pleasant cafe. It is well-lighted. The light is very good. And also now there are shadows. There are shadows of the leaves. Yeah, so the whole, it's the whole picture that, that... That increases the consolation, I guess, of the place, which is maybe what he's meditating on in these important... That's, I think that's what it is. It's what makes this place a respite from that, that dread. And he's trying to put it together. It's the light. You don't want music. And so he's... Mm. Why, why is this place an exception to that? feeling right the the not the 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 needing needing there not to be music is fascinating because it suggests that you you can't avoid it you can't just let the music distract you you can't go to a place like that and let the music drown out everything else and he even says there are shadows of the leaves and the shadows are necessary and like you need the clean well lit well ordered clean and pleasant cafe all that but you can't ignore everything there still has to be the shadow of the nothingness there 
for that light to be meaningful. It's like the Flanagan O'Connor thing that like redemption is meaningless unless there's something to be redeemed from. Right. Maybe. We had every intention of keeping this brief. For so, I mean, it's fifteen hundred words. James Gray said this might be the greatest short story ever written. <clears throat> he, yeah, I actually have this written down. It says James Joyce. James Joyce once remarked, "Quote: Hemingway has reduced. Well, he said he. I'm saying Hemingway for clarity has reduced the veil between literature and life, which is what every writer strives to do. Have you read a clean, <clears throat> well-edited place? This isn't a letter. It is masterly. Indeed, it is one of the best short stories ever written." Wow. <clears throat> but I mean I don't maybe we don't care what James Joyce says. Well, I mean he <laughs> he he is he's tricky. He he's a master of the craft himself though. That is James <laughs> Joyce. But so we have I to mean, cover this this is a bottomless short story. Before we go though, bottomless though it may be, I've got we've got to mention three things. Um there's three lines in particular that I think we have to touch on quickly. At the end of the long paragraph he smiled and stood before a bar with a shining, shining steam pressure coffee machine. This is what you were talking about, Tim, where you're not sure. I think it was you, Tim, where you, you like, why is his face wet or his hands wet or whatever? All of a sudden, yeah. he's at a bar, but it takes you a couple of reads to realize he's not at his bar anymore. And during that paragraph, he's now at another bar, and it's not him that's holding the shining steam pressure coffee machine. It's the, the other bar that has the shining steam pressure coffee machine. Um, that's classic Hemingway right there. <clears throat> then the then the next that was just that's my final thought type type comment there. The other I got a question here though. He says the light is very bright and pleasant, but the bar is unpolished. The waiter says yeah, that to yeah. the other barman. What 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 does that have to do with anything? Why does he point out very potentially in kind of a hilariously rude way to the other barman that his bar is unpolished? The barman just looks at him and doesn't answer. It's too late for conversation, he says, because you can't have a conversation in a bar. But what's what does this unpolished <laughs> bit matter, Tim? He, he's he's this is coming at the tail end of him having this conversation with himself that we were just discussing. What makes this bar good? What makes it a respite from the dark? And he's having this conversation. He walks in, he orders a drink, and he's observing that same thing. What about the new bar that he's in is lacking? Why is it not kind of a respite? Well, it is. It just lacks a little bit, which is it needs it needs the brass to be polished. The bar the bar needs to be polished. It's a peculiar comment. It's a really peculiar comment. But it makes sense given what he's kind of been preoccupied with on the previous page. Yeah, it's a reminder that the light itself is not all that's needed. This, the idea of clean and the cleanliness, the order has to be there as well. Right. Yeah, I think he's, and I, and I think the subtext of that, like the seventh, seven eighths of it that's still underwater, is <laughs> that the second waiter can't find his own clean, well lighted place. You know, the old man at least has that. But the waiter, the second waiter can't find it in the story. Next thing we got to talk about before we go. This line. After all, he said to himself, it's probably only insomnia. Many must have it. 
I just want, this goes back to the the pronoun thing. It's probably only insomnia. Insomnia. Many must have it, which goes back to the line. It was the light. Of course, he keeps basically sort of telling us that what it is, but then he keeps right. it sort of shifts on us. So Heidi, um, you 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 were telling us earlier you have insomnia. I do. Um, it's the worst. So many have it. If you could just sit back for us, and uh, Tim and I will listen while you talk about that for a while. Um, <laughs> I have it too, actually. Um, yeah, I was going to say, David, really? <laughs> uh, what, what is that? I mean, I guess I'm just going to put this in kind of a trite way, but what, is that, what does that bit mean to you as someone who actually kind of deals with that, with, with, the, with insomnia? Right, right. Well, I think insomnia is a... a it's a pretty, I mean, many must have it. That's actually true. Many people don't sleep. He's using it here, I think, as another objective correlative of the modern experience, the despair, the endless thoughts, the being unable at night to escape the nothingness, the nada, right? And and I think there is... a something very, very different about lying in bed thinking about something because you can't sleep and then getting up the next day and and having hours at your disposal to actively deal with whatever situation you have. There's something very um, existentially terrifying about insomnia, honestly, like that I think most people who struggle with it... um, that is the time when you're face to face with mortality or whatever it is. Like I wake up at night and I worry about my teeth. This is true. Like I'll wake up, be like, I haven't been to the dentist. I probably have a cavity, <laughs> but I can get up at eight o'clock in the morning. And the and anxiety call the is just boring a little cavity into right? your teeth. But I think we all we all have had that. You wake up and you worry about something little that becomes big in your head that is really nothing, which again is another contemplation of this story. But for the waiter here, what he's, I think what he's getting at in this last paragraph is I have no clean, well lighted place. And, and so I am fundamentally alone and I can't even sleep to get away from it. And that's how the story ends. Hmm. But the temptation again with Hemingway is, especially for, I think, fairly reasonably happy Christian readers is to dismiss that and say, it's just nihilism. But I really think Hemingway is asking questions, not just saying life is meaningless and empty. He's exploring how people experiencing experience this. And I think there's still a question mark there, not just a statement about universal meaninglessness. A hundred percent. I think it's interesting that he just break he he drops this idea of the absence of sleep into it, right? And that mm-hmm. he only can go to sleep once the light comes. Mm-hmm. You know, the 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 yeah. absence of nothingness as far as sleep goes. You know, it inverts once the daylight actually does come. So, in some ways, you know. It, 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 my first instinct, I remember reading this the first time and when I don't read it for a while and I come back to it, my first instinct is to think, oh, he's ign- he's going to just ignore, he's going to kind of put out of the, his head his, what he's dealing with. 
in, in kind of an unhealthy way. But then when you realize that, you know, once the light comes, then he can go to sleep. There's a sort of implicit hopefulness in that, or at least a longing for, for the, 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 uh, the idea that there is hope out there somewhere. You know, I, I think that, and thus it becomes kind of a positive, uh, a m- much more positive ending that I think people often associate Hemingway with. I know everybody doesn't read it that way, but for me anyway, right. that's, that's what comes, comes to the surface for me. That's good. Tim, what are your final thoughts? Because Heidi and I have been talking for like the last little while. So you need to jump in here. I heard a little bit of this in Heidi's last comment that it's tempting to read Hemingway, you know, it's just kind of like literary nihilism or something like that. But I want to echo that it's, it's not just that. Um, I hope readers are willing to give him the benefit of like this strong humanism. And I mean that like humanism is this very loaded word. And I mean that in the best possible way. He, I think he identifies a common plight that we're all on. And even if you don't agree a hundred percent with where he ends up, it certainly doesn't make him a nihilist. Right. Mm. Maybe it's the difference between grief and despair. Right. He hasn't given up. He's, He's still he's not he's in sad. Like he explores human sadness, but not just human, <clears throat> not just like it's all worth nothing, even though that is what he says in the story, but it's not what he means. Seven eighths of it is under the surface. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, there, you know, the thing though is that there is this old man who, who did try to, who did have right. a, a degree of despair. He was saved from his own despair, but that there, mm. you know, Despair is not usually that far away. And so on the one hand, you have um, the possibility of despair. But on the other hand, you have the hope that the daylight is eventually going to come and you're going to be able to go to sleep. And then you can um, go to sleep. And, and those are kind of, you know, the two different kinds of sleep. <laughs> um, there's a lot of church father writing, <laughs> church fathers mm-hmm. writing on those those concepts, which you could go down a you know, go down a rabbit hole if you wanted to. Um, so I, that, that's what, it's such a complicated ending in that way, I think. And, and it's such a complicated... This question of despair is interesting because when you think about Hemingway's biography in particular, because, um, you know, he did end up having... Committing a, suicide. Committing suicide, mm-hmm. a degree of despair that he couldn't handle anymore. Um you know, he was longing for that, that sleep. Right. Right. Um, right. And so, you know, I, I struggle with the, with whether we want to, how, how much we should say that, well, it's not, it's not despair. Um, I think the question is how much despair can a person live with? I think well, that's, that's one of the things that Hemingway's, Hemingway's getting at is that th- we live in a world that is surrounded by despair. How can we not despair what we're seeing? Um, I don't know if anybody has seen the the new Ethan Hawke movie, First Reformed. Um, it's mm-hmm. kind of all about this. Like it, living in this, yeah. living in the world that we live in, that we've lived in for the last hundred years, to some degree, you can, you have the only, re- the only adequate response is despair. 
So what's the, what is the, how much despair can you live with? And where do you find, where do you find, you know, healing and hope when we're surrounded by so much despair? Um, when the, when the, the natural appropriate response is to despair. So what is the hopeful thing that pulls you out of the despair, right? I think that's right. one of the big questions of the 20th century. And I think of 20th century literature. That's why I think that reading O'Connor and Graham Greene in connection with people like Fitzgerald and Hemingway and Camus and those people are so important because the despair is there. I mean, the, the right response to so much of what you see in World War I and World War II and so forth is to despair. You know, that is the natural right. response. So how do you, how do you either live with that despair? How do you revert, fall, come out of that despair? How does that despair get turned into something hopeful? And that, those are the things that Walker Percy and, and um, Flannery O'Connor and Graham Greene are, are grappling with. And they're suggesting that there is a hope in the midst of all that despair. But, but Hemingway's not wrong. Bonus, bonus episode <laughs> on that. Yeah. An extra bonus, like a I, meta bonus. I just think, I just think, Henry, just, was that for just for you and me, and and Tim? <laughs> but the, I don't know. But that question, because I have like fifty responses to all the questions that you're asking right now. But we're done, so <laughs> maybe we can do a follow up. Yeah, but, yeah. <laughs> I just think I don't. I think. I, go ahead, Tim. I was going to say, I'm thinking about um. A writer like Brett Easton Ellis, yeah. um, who wrote Less Than Zero. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's, I, I don't think there is anything in a Brett Easton Ellis novel. There was nothing there to lose. I, I'm not trying to indict hmm. him as hmm. a person. I just mean in his writing, it is a style. It's a it's a brilliantly crafted style. But it is, it, there's a flatness to it that the kind of longing that you read in Hemingway is not there in Ellis's work. And I'm not claiming that Hemingway does not have a style. He has a very, very distinct style. But that style is matched by the depth of the longing yeah. and yeah. feeling and like philosophical probing that's going on with Hemingway. I don't think mm-hmm. with Ellis, like using him as my hobby horse, that there's a, he just, <laughs> you're going to get an email from him. Value. <laughs> it's fine. He takes at face value, this sort of like hard ironclad secularity. That's all there is. And you can kind of like slide down the surface of it and you can make a meaning. You can, you can make a, um, a style that makes that secularity kind of pleasant to pass for a while, but there's nothing on the other side of it. And I think for Hemingway, I think until the end of his life, he was hoping that there was something on the other side of it. He's never cynical, mm. Hemingway. Mm. He's right. Always He's never, open. yeah. Always open, like wounded, like deeply wounded, but open. And mm-hmm. and I think that's what's special about the lost generation because they're the first. They don't have any armor to this despair, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, so no they're like, yes, and I love that. That's what I love about them, and that is they mm-hmm. just stay open. Like they suffer deeply and they give up on the truth and they shouldn't do that. But they're not armored against the questions that they're asking. The way mm-hmm. that exactly what you're describing. And that, and they haven't gotten to this inhuman 
like anti-humanist age that we're in now that thinks we can build some kind of super society to block out suffering, right? Mm. And so they're they're still mm. immersed in it. And that's very human, as Tim talked about the humanist. My favorite Hemingway, I love Hemingway. My favorite is A Movable Feast. Mm. And I love that book because of all of the descriptions of food and mm-hmm. of like sports and skiing and all it's, I mean, it's not a novel, it's a memoir. It's a fictionalized memoir of his life. And it has just these little vignettes about how he was poor and he lived with his wife that he loved before he left her, which he explores in a movable feast um, when they were mm. young and they lived in this like apartment in Paris and he was writing all the time and at this little cafe and they were poor and they would drink this cheap wine and they would, it's just roast pigeons on the spittle. Yes. It's remember delightful. that they would roast pigeons. Yes. Yeah, it is. It's absolutely. And they wonderful. had to hike when they were skiing. You guys don't and he do says that? no one should ski unless they hike. <laughs> what? I said you guys don't roast pigeons on the spittle. <laughs> I mean, that's what we're doing while we're camping. Okay, right. we're gonna you're going to sous vide. You're going to sous vide them and then roast them on the spittle, right? Yeah, that's that's how we roll. Ro- roast pigeon and anyway, champagne. That, yes. So this idea of this robust humanism, like I'm dealing with the despair of World War One, but I'm, I'm I still love food and conversation and yeah. and travel and the good life and that robust engagement with the full experience of a human life. I think is compelling about the lost generation. Mm. I think one of the things Hemingway is getting at in so many books, you see this especially in. Uh... The sun also rises. Is how mm-hmm. do you do that when despair is all around you? Right. When when like That's despair is encroaching, how do you? You know, it depends. I guess how you want to think about the analogy of running with the bulls, right? But like, how do right. you? How do you hunt down and enjoy a clean, well-lighted place when the shadows are kind of always encroaching? That Absolutely. seems to be the at the the core of Hemingway. And he offers so many different answers. So many of his different characters have different, different ways of answering that question. Um, right. And also, by the way, that's what a lot of crime fiction in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s is about. So you should read more crime fiction. Just throwing that out there. <laughs> <laughs> hey, um, all right, we should go. Um, Heidi got, Heidi's got to go uh, find her sous vide machine. And- I have to go, you know, shoot some pigeons and squirrels. <laughs> <laughs> um, Tim? Have any final thoughts you want to offer? No, no final thoughts from me. Heidi, do you want to add anything else? No, I've I've said a lot of things. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks. If you're listening to this show, it means that you are supporting the networks your Patreon. So, just want to uh, say thank you for doing that. Thanks, you got um, it. These shows are, uh, you know, our, our way of saying thank you. Um, hopefully, you'll really enjoy them. Hopefully, we helped. Um, I guess explain and and. Um, helped you enjoy Hemingway a little bit. Uh, hopefully, we'll do you know the sun also rises or something like that on the the main show one of these days. I know Tim would Tim would love that, right? Would love that. And uh, what's the what did you say was the heart book? David, I was on mute. I was on mute. I would <laughs> like, love that. No, I don't know that. And um, <laughs> a river runs through it, right? Those are your those are hard books for you. I'm. That was a fascinating. A river runs through it. I love a river runs through it so much. I've never read it. I've never read it. Oh, it's just incredible. It's incredible.
It'd be pretty awesome. All if, right. If, we'll do yeah, that sometime know, yeah. soon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I hope so. Please. Well, again, thanks everybody for listening. Um, as always, we're, we're all over the internet, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. All over. Email. We're sweeping yeah, the nation. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, a couple thousand listeners right at a time. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, thanks for listening. Thanks for thanks for supporting. Um, if you want to join this conversation on this episode, you can do that on Facebook, but also on Patreon underneath the show. You can um, you can we can have conversations on each episode there where we post it. So it'll go to your feed. You can listen. And you can add the, the RSS link to whatever podcast app you use. But if you want to discuss this episode on the Patreon page underneath the link, you can do that as well. And we'll jump over there and try to participate where we can. Um, uh, if that conversation starts, I'll make sure to let Heidi and Tim know. But also, yeah, if you want to do it on the Facebook page and let people know about this, that's that's fine as well. So with that, Heidi, have fun sous viding and champagneing at on your adventure mobile. And uh, Tim, <laughs> have fun writing your tome. Your tomes. Thank you. <laughs> good, Thank you. Good luck. Let us know how it goes. <laughs> What exciting thing are you doing today, David? Uh, I'm going to go edit some articles for a magazine that, so a little magazine we do sometimes. Me too, actually. That's what I'll do today. And then maybe I will open some champagne here in the office and take a nap. That sounds like the best thing. That sounds perfect. You should definitely do that. Because it's the daytime and I can't sleep. That's right. You can sleep during the day. (laughs) Exactly. All right. Well, with that, for Heidi and for Tim and for all of us here at the Close Reads Podcast Network, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks so much for supporting the show. Happy reading. We'll talk to you next time.